And that jarring cacophony, which is getting a little bit disco there in the background with the Mankind version of the Doctor Who theme, tells you it's the 1970s and it's also 2024. You're listening to the Power of Three podcast and I'm Kenny Smith and I'm joined today by the one and only... Stephen Day. Hi, Kenny, for episode 201. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, it seems just like like a few minutes since we're doing episode 200, but seven days have passed and... Here we are. Yeah, there was an awful lot of clearing up of bottles of iron brew and tonics, caramel wafers. And, Absolutely. And stuff. Yep, sweeping up the studio, just the two of us. And uh, yep. But I think then again, I suppose once we finished recording, when the other guys came round, when Tom and Dave and oh, John can't, came round. I can't and, believe what, you know, how loud they were and what they brought. And, I know. And I mean, thank God the microphone wasn't on when Tom was giving us his views on Doctor Who these days. Yeah. We'd have been cancelled. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The beep machine might have been, but I mean, overawed. Absolutely, it would have been broken, I think. So, yes, but there we go. Our 200th episode's done. So now we're closing in in episode 300, only after today, 99 more to go. So, I'm sure we'll achieve that probably by, given the rate at which episodes are coming out at the moment, we'll probably achieve that by uh, July. No, I jest. I was going to say Easter, but maybe that's true. okay. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe maybe push back on that a little bit. So yes, we're continuing our look at season fifteen on Blu-ray, which is on the way and will be out in as we speak, just over two weeks. So quite exciting, and uh, I do love my Doctor Who the collection. I've got my set so far, and there's just something so lovely about having a whole Doctor Who series on a shelf and just in one big box, like the thickness of like a videotape and a half. Do you know the great thing about having physical media? Now, I know there's been enhancements and effects, but you've, yeah. the, the fact is, with physical media, nobody can change it. Mm. If you buy season 15 or all the stories in season 15 10 years ago, you can go to your player, pop them in, and they'll be exactly the same. You buy your season 15 new stuff, and you get all the enhancements and everything, but it's there and pop it in. Nobody can say, oh, do you know, that scene was maybe a bit more underrepresentative. I think we'll change it. Yeah, That's what I love about real media. Yes, I'm the same. That's why I still like to buy books. I like to buy newspapers. I like to buy CDs. I'm very, very 20th century. It's not 20th century. It's it's keeping an archive. Or is it is called un- being normal? Control. Normal, yes, normal. Yeah, Keep hear that when 21st century kiddos buy real things, support them, buy magazines, buy books, yeah, and don't pirate them because we don't approve of that in the no. slightest. No. So there, piracy costs money. It does, jobs and lives. Exactly, particularly in the media. So buy a yeah. magazine, buy a newspaper, buy a book. Subscribe to them all as well. So yes, not don't subscribe to like every magazine newspaper because that would just no, that's, bankrupt that's, you. That's but too much. Subscribe too much. to ones that you like. Buy yeah. Doctor Magazine, buy SFX, buy these things. Give them money. 
don't just wait on Twitter for somebody to share all the news for free. Not no. good. Not no. good. And if you do that, then Dave Steele will come around and he'll break your knees. <laughs> we have such lovely company, don't we? We do. We do indeed. So let's uh, stop talking about breaking knees and uh, and doing horrific things to people because we'll leave that to the Fendal. So let's have a very quick clip from Image of the Fendal. <laughs> Someone coming. Your discovery could be one of the most important milestones in human development. I need help. I think it's the Fendal. Is it alive? Yes. Adam. I said don't touch her. There are 4,000 million people here on your planet. And if I'm right, within a year, there'll be just one left alive. The place must be left for the one that kills. It grows and exists by death. This is not how it should be! You are being used! Mankind has been yours! So, yes, now, you mentioned last week, Stevie, that Image of the Fendal was a story that isn't particularly one that you enjoyed. Not particularly. I I read it first, I think, and then I watched it. This would probably be my second watching the other week. Yeah. And and I think the fact that I forgot it existed when you mentioned it before in this season is probably um, indicates something. It was a fair enough book ish, but wasn't one of my my highlights. I don't know. I, I felt it was just lacking something. I, I can see it, as I said, as a wee bit of a feeder for Canine and Company with the witchcraft and things. And if you're into that, it's all good. But yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those slower stories. Um, I loved the little the little baby Fendel. I felt very sorry for that. Um, there were an awful lot of coincidences, but maybe not properly explained. Uh, I, yeah. Am I misinterpreting something? Was the priory was destroyed, wasn't it? Yes. Fetch did, we priory, have, yeah. did we have something built on that later? No, it, I think you're thinking of um, it was Pyramids of Mars. You're right. It's, it was the same building. It was Spargos, the same building. Mick Jagger's yes. old house, and uh, Unit HQ was built on top of the the house from Pyramids of Mars. Right. So not the image of the Fendel. So I'm getting it, confused. It is the same building. That's why you're getting confused. It's ah, exactly right. the same building, but used two seasons apart. So, right. Yeah. That's interesting to say that because for me, Fendel is one of those ones. It's again, it feels like like horror fang rock. It could almost be a like almost like a final hurrah for the era that went before. It's got you know the trademarks of the Hinchcliffe Holmes style, where you've mm-hmm. got a story that feels like it's based on a Hammer horror film. It's got that kind of feel to it with scientists, it's almost a bit Quatermass in the pit, that sort of way. And you've got the body horror with people being transformed into something else. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's maybe it doesn't have much charm or fun to it. That's, that's maybe. Something. Did you remember up what I was saying about horror fan rock? Fan, fan rock? Horror fan rock last week was that you cared about the characters, even mm-hmm. even the 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 guy who you know was 
caused the ship to crash because he wanted to get back to London in the fog. But you know, you did care about the characters. I just felt with Fendal, I didn't really care much or too much about the characters. Maybe it was a bit too wordy. Maybe it was a bit too slow. It's fine. You know, it's an adventure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to trash it because it's a favourite of many and it's decent enough. Just doesn't grab me. Interesting, because I think the imagery is fantastic. I mean, you've got, we've got um, Benedict Cumberbatch's mum has the the Fendel cores, the wand of Anthem. I think she's fantastic, and she looks incredible when she's in all the gold and mm. all the spinning round, and just that's horrific. Sort of the fact that she's been stripped of her individuality and become this monstrous thing that spins around and with her death stare. Yeah, and and as Dave and I said a few weeks back. Benedict was about one year old when she did this, <laughs> but I, th- I mean, I think she's fab. But yeah, there's the other characters are fairly sort of generic scientists with big moustaches and things like that. Yeah, but fine. And you know, Tom Tom's doing the thing. I think, although there are many people going to be typing at their keyboards now, I think Granny, if I'm not wrong, was the mother into the Manor Born. Oh, I didn't know that. But I was thinking when you mentioned Granny, could she be um, great-grandmother to Rose Tyler, since it's the Tyler oh, family? The Tyler there family. Well, oh, oh there's, a, there's a big finish in that. There is. Anyway, I'd be interested to know if, if uh, she was William Devere's mother yeah. uh, from To the Man of Born. She just had that look about her, and it was probably about the right time. Mm-hmm. I haven't done my research. I'm sorry, people out there. Somebody can tell me on the youtube yep, channel and just absolutely. drop us a video and tell us yeah yeah and we'll drop that in next week but uh, i mean what do you think of the design of the fendal hair seemed to feature in this season as i said before mm-hmm. um it was fairly immobile for a creature that was going to cause problems i loved baby fendal i think i want one of them on my desk i i i don't know i'm Keep chatting, Stevie. I'm going to get something out of the cupboard. Okay. The the image that is on the front of the target cover, you can imagine it as a monster. I think as it's revealed, it's just not what I was expecting. And listeners, you see me observing the back of Kenny as he goes into his natural habitat of storage. He's stalking now, gently looking on shelves. And there he comes. He's got his prey. And as he sits down... He's about to present what he has captured. Yes, he has captured. Oh, baby Fendel. Yeah, it's the the character options action figure. So it's very immobile, it's solid, but it looks good. Well, do you know, know, it was was carrying on from from the program. (laughs) That's unfair. It's a prawn-based life form, I feel. I, I can see what they were aiming for. Yeah, something sort of somewhere between snaky, insectoid, reptilian, just, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the action figure, you can get a bit more detail on it, and it is quite horrible, but yeah. I think, I think, in the design, the original design of it, if you if you did that now and you were CGIing it, somebody back then was way ahead of the curve in what they want to design, but you, again, you're hampered by budget, how fast you can move it. Um, what menace is actually going to to cause? I mean, for me, the horror, the horror, as in most things in horror movies, is you know, um, have a perfectly ordinary skull. Well, that's horror, horror enough yeah. to make it start glowing. 
is you know you don't want to be coming down a corridor in an old house in the dark and meet a glowing skull no I was agree that, with that that's the horror I feel a bit like Alien um, less of the Fendal would have been more leave it up to my imagination Okay, there we go. Thank you for that, Stevie. Interesting. What did it's, you think, Kenny? Though I mean, I enjoy know, it. I, I've, I mean, it's, it's because it's it's a story I like, but I don't love because I think it's the sort of the humour. Because I do like my Doctor with a bit of humour, and this one it's quite it's quite grim. It's quite relentless. It's quite dark that way, and um, I mean, it, I think it's it's well directed by George Benton Foster, but. There's just something about it. I don't quite know what it is. I can't quite put my finger on it to make me go from liking it to loving it. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a, a pacing thing as well. Yeah. I think it could be maybe less words and just slightly tighter. If it had been a three-episoder or a two-episoder, maybe, I don't know. We, we will never know. No, we won't. But something that we will know, Stevie, mm-hmm. is a bit of detail about how this season was brought to life. Mm-hmm. We're now going to have a quick chat with Richard Bignall, who has, as always, created the PDF archive that appears on these discs. And he's got a hell of a lot of pages. I'm not going to tell you how many pages are on this. He's going to tell you himself, and let's hear from him now. Hello, I'm Richard Bignall, and uh, for the Blu-ray collections, I primarily look after the PDF archive and uh, curating that, putting it all together. So, Richard, as we stand today, we're talking on the 12th of January, the day after season 15 has been announced. How many pages do you currently have for this next release? Uh, So, this next one currently stands at uh, 4,353 pages so um it's sort of one of our our middling ones didn't quite reach the heights of uh, the season 20 with 8800 but uh, uh that's perhaps only to be expected but yeah it's a it's a decent size one this time and on what date will this finally be locked off just in case you come across anything else because i know what you're like well theoretically because the pdf archive doesn't have to go through the same um vetting procedures as the video material does theoretically we could make adjustments right up until the point where they press the button to say right it's all now being sent off which we have done on occasions and um and also when we go through the quality control test discs um sometimes you'll suddenly spot things where you've you've not quite set things right the parameters are slightly off and you just have to make slight adjustments so you know things are done at that stage as well so it's not really too much of an issue to slot something else in if we need to um but it doesn't usually happen that late uh usually we try and get it all done and dusted in plenty of time now the thing that mentioned last time with uh, season 20 was the fact there was such a surplus of material and you'd started work on it years ago. So when did you begin work on season 15? Oh gosh. Um, Probably uh, probably about eight or nine months ago I would have thought started doing it. Um 
Uh, as soon as I'm told what the forthcoming sets are, I will start work almost immediately, just just in my own headspace, really, just working out, okay, what's available, what do we need to be looking for, and so on and so forth. So, so this week I have just been um, told what the set after the next one will be, um, I've already started compiling my list of what I need to look at at the written archives, various bits and pieces I need to start looking for. In fact, I did my first PDF for it last night, so <laughs> that's, that's, that's 53, 54 pages in the bag already. When? So, uh, yeah, so it's um, you tend to start as soon as possible because... A lot of the work that I do has got to go into the processing of the material once you've got it scanned. So you've got to go through it. A, can we use it? Do we need to get permissions to use it? If so, trying to secure that. If it's uh, if it's the party material, if the people are still around. Um, any redactions that need to be made, manually need, need to be made, any tidying up that needs to be done if it happens to be very old material some of the scripts we're now using are can be quite old scans uh, that have been done off of microfilm and stuff so they can be a bit grubby be a bit dirty so you sort of sometimes sit there trying to tidy it up as much as possible get things straight trying to tidy up any of the marks that have appeared over the years where it's been copied off several times so you know, sometimes uh, I was doing some of this over the over the break, and uh, I think one one front page of one script took me about half an hour to tidy up. You know, and some scripts you've got seventy, eighty pages worth to do. So it's uh, it can be a bit of a laborious process sometimes. But you know, you're doing it once for a, for a final result, just to make something look as good as possible. So. But the sooner I can crack into it, the better it is for my own peace of mind that that that's been done, and I can go on to go on to other materials. It, you know, you don't feel like you're chasing too much right towards the end of the process to try and cram everything in. So you previously teased us with some gems in advance. So, what particular highlights have you found in in these old scripts, letters, and other documents? Uh, there's some nice bits and pieces coming up in season 15. So, for Horror of Fang Rock, uh, we have the one episode synopsis that um, Terence did, Dix did. I think uh, after they swapped over from the vampire mutations and they weren't doing that anymore, and he was going to go over to doing a lighthouse story, he did a, a very brief synopsis of the first episode of Rocks of Doom, as it was called at the time. Um, just to show where the thing was going, um, so so that's that's a single page document, but uh, you've got uh, a different set of characters in there than the ones we've ended up with. So your your lighthouse keepers, you've still got Ben um, as we have now, but the other two were originally Joshua and Davy. Lord Palmerdale was originally Lord Peach Palmer with a hyphen, and he's got. Still got Adelaide, his secretary, um, but he's also got a valley called Birkin. Um, and Skinsale has his wife with him, Veronica. 
uh, in that. So it's a, a slightly different character makeup that they've got. We've also got for Horror Fang Rock, there are the um, visual effects storyboards which were drawn up. Uh, we've also got um, Mitch Mitchell's video effects storyboards and plans that uh, he made at the time. So we've got that. There's rather an interesting letter towards the end, which actually comes from Graham Williams to um, Sean Gaffney, uh, Caffrey, who played um, Palmerdale. Uh, and it's one that I've I've not really seen before and not seen talked about because apparently Sean Caffrey, very last day of recording, um, decided to throw a complete wobbler on the studio floor. And um, Graham Williams is basically ticking him off for his attitude and the way he went about things and said, you know, I'm trying to effectively say to you, this isn't professional, you shouldn't be doing this. And I'm trying to address this with you directly, because if I did it through your agent, it will be in rather more stronger terms. We don't exactly know what, what happened or what went wrong. There's certainly never reply to it. But um, but yeah, so so it adds a, an interesting bit of colour into um, horror of Fang Rock, Invisible Enemy. There's a little uh, piece of documentation in there to say that very early on, director Derek Goodwin had pulled had pulled Fantastic Voyage uh, out of the archive to have a have a look at, so that he could get some inspiration in doing that. There's a number of memos in there relating to K9 and the fact that BBC Enterprises were going to give £500 towards the development of K9 because they wanted it, in their words, to ensure that it had merchandising potential. But then there's a, a few back and forth to that when they find out that Bob Baker and Dave Martin do have rights in K9 and therefore uh, any money that BBC Enterprises get back might end up having to be split with them and they're, they're not overly chuffed with that. Um, well, we've got a separate little, in connection with um, The Invisible Enemy, we've got a separate little PDF archive for K9's appearance on Blue Peter, um, that famous one that he does with um, John Noakes and Shep going a bit mad. Yep. And uh, and what's quite nice in that is that it's it's Graham Williams who actually writes the script for that, and you actually see in that just how how well scripted Blue Peter actually was because what Graham Williams writes is pretty much verbatim what they actually did on the day, so that that's sort of quite interesting from that point of view. And Billy Baxter was so delighted with that that she actually asked Graham whether or not it would be okay from their point to go and do a, to show viewers how to make their own canine on Blue Peter, which they never actually did. That was something that they, they never went through with, but they were they were asking the question. Graham Williams didn't seem to have a problem with it. So, uh, yeah, that's something that they didn't do. Image of the Fendal, there's a, a rather nice list in there of potential actors that they were going to look at for Dr. Fendelman. So we've got people like uh, Michael Goff, Colin Blakely. Interestingly, Michael Bryant, who was the Michael Bryant who was on the Stone Tape, played the lead in the Stone Tape, shouty Michael Bryant. Yes. Now, that, that, that could have been quite an interesting bit of casting. John Carson, who, of course, ends up in Snake Dance. The well-known stage actor Paul Damon. Alfred Burke. 
Robert Hardy, Charles Kay. There's, there's quite a few that they were were considering as possible. So it's a, it's an interesting um, thought, an interesting take on Fendelman. Uh, there's also a nice um, memo in there from Graham McDonald, the head of serials, after he's read the rehearsal script, because in the original rehearsal script, you do actually see Stahl killing himself by putting the gun in his mouth. And Graham McDonald says, I don't really think that's on. That's, that's, that's a bit heavy. And indeed, Graham Williams, in his response to that, says, yes, we've already flagged that and we've already come up with an alternate for that that we're doing. But one of the nice things with this particular set is that we do have, um, as well as the camera scripts for uh, Image of the Fendal, we do have the rehearsal scripts as well, which have been donated to us by a collector. Mark Watterson, um, he got Chris Boucher's original rehearsal scripts and he's allowed us to scan those and include those on the set. So uh, you've actually got on there, you can actually see the passage that Graham McDonald was looking at where it talks about Star raising the gun gun to his mouth to sort of blow his head off. So you can actually see the reasons why Graham McDonald was a bit twitchy about it. For those of you who were listening when we did covered season 20, uh, a few months ago, I made reference on there to some photographs which we were had managed to find. Well, this is where they come in because I got in contact with the designer Anna Ridley on the image of the Fendal. It's the only one that Anna ever did for Doctor Who, and I, I got in contact with her just to say, look, you know, do you happen to have kept any of your drawings or studio layouts or anything for the program? And she hadn't. But she did come back and say, well, I, I do have a set of slides that I took during the studio rehearsals and uh, you're welcome to use those if you want. So she sent us those. I think there's about 19 or so slides in total. So I sent those off to Derek Hanley. Derek scanned those in HD. So we've got a nice section on the photo gallery, which is all of Anna's uh, photographs, which are, which are lovely and yeah, we thank Anna very much for those as well. Underworld was actually a surprisingly thin file, production file, when we, we got to it. It mainly consists of copious amounts of, perhaps unsurprisingly, Mitch Mitchell's video effects storyboards, uh, trying to work out how, how on earth they were going to do the majority of those cave scenes. So we include all of those, as well as the, the few bits of documentation. Invasion of Time is an interesting one. There's a lot of quite a lot of documentation for Invasion of Time. The the actual document archive is 540 pages on the Invasion of Time. That's got Graham, Graham Williams's storyline for the Invasion of Time, just showing how how they originally envisaged it. We've got as normal the the scripts, the camera scripts for this. Uh, just to explain though, that the camera scripts for these ones are something of a hybrid because as far as we're aware, no full set of camera scripts is known to exist for these that are properly usable. The BBC's hard copy versions are very scrappy and they are overwritten in biro, at least for episodes uh, one to four, maybe two, three, four, five and six are okay, but they're usable. But what we had, we managed to find a set of studio recording scripts. So they are just the pages for those studio recording days set by set. 
So we managed to find that. So we had some of the original pages that we could put back in. We then managed to find another studio recording, which had some of the uh, missing pages in between those, which we were able to put in. And then I've had to infill those with copies of the BBC's microfilmed camera scripts. So it's a bit of a patchwork quilt, the, the six episodes. As I said, five and six are, are fine. I think one's not too bad. Two, three, and four are, are sort of various alternate sort of black and white and colour copies, depending on what you've got. We, we try to get it as best as, as we can, but essentially what you end up with is the best set of camera scripts that you're likely to get available unless they certainly turn up from somewhere. What we have also included, though, is the BBC's hard copy scripts for Invasion of Time for episodes two, three, and four are all marked videogram edited. And this goes back, way back, if people can remember, in uh, Doctor Who magazine's early years to the, I think it was a Gallifrey. No, it wasn't. It was a Matrix data bank. And someone had written in asking if any that their parents had just got a VHS player or something, VHS or video disc, can't remember. And what was any Doctor Who going to be ever commercially available? And they, they came out with this one line of, oh, BBC Enterprises are thinking out about bringing a 90-minute edit of Invasion of Time out. And no more was ever said about it. And the assumption was that this was just a, a passing idea that nothing happened. And indeed, that was my assumption up until about 10 years ago. When I happened to mention it, I think on Gallifrey Base, and then I pretty much immediately got an email through from Andrew Martin at the BBC Archive saying, no, they actually did it, and it's sitting in the vault. Huh. Um, they, they completed the edit, and it's sitting in the vault. Now, of course, at that time, we couldn't do anything with it because... Uh, the DVD range was coming to an end. We'd already done Invasion of Time, and there was no real thought about doing anything further with them. But of course, when we started doing the Blu-rays, this obviously now became a possibility again. And I mentioned this to Paul Venezes, saying maybe we should have a look, see whether or not this actually is there because Andrew had indicated that BBC Worldwide had a vault in the archives with some of their masters in, and it was part of that. Andrew said that he had gone to look for it and he couldn't find it at that particular moment, but he didn't. He did know that it was there because he'd actually seen it at some point. So Paul passed this on to Steve Roberts, because Steve works at Paravel, at the, at the archive, and Steve said, well, there isn't a vault for BBC Worldwide as it was, material. And then he asked one of his bosses, and his bosses said, oh, yeah, but there was, but it's no longer here. And a lot of the material had been put into deep storage, but they'd gone through it. They had gone through it, and we did it out. So quite a protracted period of time went past where checks were being made. The long and the short of it, it appears that the thing no longer exists. It has gone. Oh. Um, but what we do have are these rather scrappy scripts, and these are the ones that have been 
photocopied and then I think probably the BBC script unit as it was then went over them in blue biro to try and make them a bit more legible and then for episodes two three and four we've got scrolled on the front videogram edit and you go through the scripts and there are scenes actually physically crossed out as to what they were going to get wow. rid of or what they were planning to get rid of so i thought well for the sake of this it would be nice just to put the, all of those together so that people i've not tidied them up in any way they're just pretty much the raw scans as they as they've come out of the bbc archive we did consider whether or not there was a possibility that we could remake it and i did a, a very quick offline edit of it literally just chopping out those scenes to see whether or not it would work now dwm had said when they mentioned it that this was supposed to be a 90 minute edit so effectively you're losing a good chunk of the story you know about half of the story just chopping out the scenes in two three and four but because my assumption was that perhaps what they were trying they were aiming to do was to cut the Varden half of the story those four episodes down by half and then effectively leave five and six which is the Sontaran half of the story as complete as possible so you had a Varden half yeah. and you had a Sontaran half that's what I do um because there weren't any edit scripts for five and six so I wondered if that was a possibility if you just do the raw edit on based on the scripts for two three and four and leave episode one pretty much intact of course you're taking out a lot of the credits opening and closing credits as well it takes for those four down to about one hour six minutes when you add on that extra 50 minutes of five and six that takes it over onto about an hour 55 which is still way over length if they were doing a 90 minute so my assumption is they probably would have had to hack it down quite a bit more it was noticeable that the edits that they they were thinking about making were also partial scenes as well so there are some horrific potential jump cuts in in the scenes and some very clunky ones as well because there is there are cuts coming halfway through music so i'm not quite sure how they would have tidied that up in the end if they were actually going to do it as a commercial project but that that was just an assumption of mine that perhaps they would try to leave the first episode ish complete episodes five and six complete and try and compress the rest down it doesn't quite work like that in practice um, so they would have had to have done more mm-hmm. more tidying. But yeah, so unfortunately, it looks like the, the work that was done on it by BBC Enterprises, BBC Worldwide, as they were at the time, doesn't exist anymore. But oh. you, you can hopefully get a little bit of a flavour with it, with a with the hybrid scripts, that the, the, the videogram edit scripts that they've um, actually put together. Yeah. Uh, so it, it might give people an idea of what's, what's what. So in terms of invasion of time there, was there much from Killer Cats or whatever Killer Cats was properly called to be included there? Because I know there were things like costume designs were started and things like that. There there was. Killers of the Dark is the the proper title. I did actually speak to David Weir once about it. And he seemed to intimate that um, he actually got money for the whole, uh, for quite a bit of the concept of Gallifrey and 
stuff that he was developing, but he hadn't kept anything, unfortunately. I, I have included a few bits and pieces. So I've included material relating from David Weir's file relating to the commissioning of Killer Cats, but there's not really anything there as such. Uh, uh, about the story and um, what they would have done with it or how it how it would have developed so there's there's a few bits and pieces there but but not a whole lot but i've i've just included that that extra bits of uh, for killer cats as i have done on horror fang rock i've included some of that early material uh, or early commissioning material for vampire mutations which is you know obviously the in the yeah. slot originally so yeah it, it just sort of as a nice extra little bit of yeah, and um, haven't mentioned the Slim Makers. Was there much from that of interest? No, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it, it's it's basically the fairly mundane production material that you get. But I don't think anything particularly stood out as far as the Slim Makers was concerned. I, I, I mean, it's a it's a reasonable file. The Slim Makers. Uh, it's two hundred and seventy-two pages that we got for that but it's um it, it's fairly run-of-the-mill stuff for for the sun makers but i'm sure people will find some interest there but we've also got some studio floor plans as well which didn't come from the bbc they came from mitch mitchell uh so we're we're grateful to him for supplying those so we've got one for horror fang rock which chris chapman has used in his new feature about horror to do a cgi recreation of the studio which is a, a very nice thing. We've got another one for Invisible Enemy, and we've got one for Underworld as well. So, um, so, so it's some extra material that's come from outside sources. Ooh, exciting, exciting mm. stuff. So, aside from the Invasion of Time lost VHS, any particular personal favourite things you've discovered? Anything new that made you go, ooh? I think it was. I, I, I mean, I just going back to that thing with. Um, canine on blue peter i just thought it was really nice seeing seeing that material and seeing how sometimes how the the, the sort of program goes outside of the outside the confines of it being dot two onto something else but how the production office was involved with that you know and how graham williams wanted to make sure that what was being presented for canine because it, it was quite early on it was only sort of one or two weeks after He'd actually been seen. In fact, I think it was after the first week, wasn't it? They did the item. Bernard Wilkie didn't want it to happen, by the way. He, he thought it was far too soon for them to go go around showing off K9 too much. Um, and Billy Baxter actually had to tell him, you know, please, you know, don't worry about it. We're not going to sort of be revealing any secrets or or making fun of, making fun of this. So uh, we're not denigrating hard work, but. Um, but yeah, just in general, I think it's um, it's ended up being a, a really interesting set of of material, and it's it's just nice once again seeing how the how the program has developed, and it's been nice just sort of adding to the ever growing pile of documentation that we've got on the sets. You know, it's um, it's all swelling quite nicely. Do you want to hear a fascinating fact? Kevin? Always, Richard. Always, <laughs> you know me. <laughs> All right. So our current total for the PDF archives over the 15 releases we've done so far is just over 58,800 pages. Now, it's interesting to put that into a little bit of context. And the context I'm going to use is the Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember going into libraries and they would always have a reference section 
of non-lendable stuff. And inevitably, yep. they would have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, Encyclopedia Britannica isn't actually made anymore. It's all gone online. The, the last time that Encyclopedia Britannica actually produced a hard copy set of encyclopedias was back in 2010. Ooh. But that, that, that was their final time that they were going to do a hard, hard copy set. Uh, and that was their 15th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannicas. And for that, if you wanted a full set, you'd pay $1,400, because in, despite the name, Encyclopedia Britannica is actually an American com company, has been since the turn of the last century. And you would get the full 32-volume set like you saw in libraries, the huge set. But that 32-volume set would encompass 32,640 pages. Wow. So to, so to put that into context, we're now talking about 15 releases in. We're now talking about just shy of 59,000 pages that we'd, we've done on the PDF archives. So that would be the equivalent of having your full 32-volume set of the Encyclopedia Britannica plus an extra, I think it is 26 volumes on top of that, just to know. encompass all the stuff that we put in the PDF archive so far. So if you think back to 2010, when they did that last set of Encyclopedia Britannica, that would cost you $1,400. That was the equivalent of just over £900 at the time. Now that would, with inflation, that would be just over uh, £1,330. And yet all of this material is on the disc that people are buying. So when people say that, you know, that they have to fork out for an extra Blu-ray drive in order to access it. It just perhaps puts the cost in a little bit of context and a little bit, bit of context about what you're getting. Because some people also said online on occasion, oh, well, wouldn't it be easier to put this stuff into a book? Well, you could do, but you'd have to have a bigger set of shells than you do for your Doctor Who complete history certainly by the time we finish so you know it just gives a, a little bit of bit of context to the size of the material that we're putting through uh that you know that this is a, a huge huge amount of documentation we've been putting onto these discs that yeah. people can can access if they want so little fun fact for you that's a great fact on which to end so richard thank you so much now i better let you get back to it because there's no slacking when you're working these releases. Constant throughput no. of stuff. No feet no. up, no rest for the wicked. No, not for me. I'm a, I'm about eighty five percent through the next one, so, so still a few little bits and pieces to do, and then yep. cracking on with the one after that. Straight on. Brilliant stuff. Well, I shall let you get back to it because I know that you're itching to go and find some more facts and pages for us. Hurrah! <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Richard. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. Thanks again, Richard, and hopefully we'll hear from Richard when the next set is on the way, whichever one it may be. But we'll discuss that uh, next week as to which one we'd like to see next. So let's now hear a quick excerpt from Doctor Who and the Sunmakers. Where are we? We're still in the solar system. The ninth planet. Pluto's a lifeless rock. It is like Earth. It's all wrong. It shouldn't be like Earth. He created a new environment for them here on Dan. Magnificent! Six suns to be fueled and serviced. The taxes, I can't pay the taxes. Taxes are the primary considerations of... These taxes, they are like sacrifices. 
taxes to tribal gods? Paying taxes more people. Then the people should rise up and slaughter their oppressors. You spare. Within ten seconds, everyone in the city will be dead. I shall have you steamed for your interference. This is the moment when I get a real feeling of job satisfaction. Stevie, this is a story that Lou Jameson always quotes as being her favourite one from her time on Doctor Who. Is it one that's one of your favourite Leela stories? I think so. I, I, it's it's a it's a fun romp. It's uh, you're not quite sure where it's going. It's very dystopian. Um, lots of corridors, lots of tall corridors. There's an interesting design thing. I mean, the thing that I always remember is the the man waiting. Forgot the character's name. Um, for the little hatch to open to let him know that his father's passed. Um, you could have done that in a you know in a two meter corridor type thing, but no, no, they went for something really tall and really way out, which kind of matched in with power station or wherever they were. And it just trots along from there. It you've got to suspend a wee bit of disbelief. You know, it's it's different from a lot of Who stories. You don't know what's going on initially. The doctor's investigating. There's lots of cliffhangers. There's lots of things that can go wrong. But I can understand why it's a favourite Leela episode. There's a lot of running around. There's a lot of good speeches for her. A wee bit similar to the speech that she did in the the trailer for this season. You know, she got Mm -hmm. to do some good good bits of acting, especially when, when they're captured and, you know, they're saying, oh, we're going to kill you. And she's telling them that she's going to take them with her. You know, they can try. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it, it again, it trots along. It, uh, it says an awful lot about the 70s. Tax collection, cost of living, whatever we called it back then. It wasn't cost of living. Morals of today, income, expenses, taxes. So... That goes over the kids' heads. The kids are just thinking, oh, what's going to happen? And Leela and the steamer, that's what it should have been called. <laughs> that's that's quite horrific for, yeah. what, seven, half past five, six o'clock? Mm, when Leela gets six. steaming, yeah, definitely. Um, but, but, you know, and, and the but but the description, you know, she's going to scream and she's going to have her, her flesh removed by this, that, and the other, and I've set up microphones to to do. It's It's a good wee story. It's a bit weird in places. You know, especially when the uh, the, the gatherer, when he's with his hat, to, yeah, but with his hat when he's tossed over the building, you actually think he's one of these characters that's going to survive a little bit and and maybe be brought to task. But no, no, angry yeah. mob. So that's. Do you think that's a good thing, Stevie? That you think that all villains should be tossed over the building? No, absolutely not. Everyone should have their uh, moment in court. But you know, it's not often that happens in Doctor Who. You honestly thought, well, you know, he's the comedy character, they're not going to go. They have killed the comedy character. Yeah, because for me, the biggest problem with the Sunmakers is the visuals, because I think it's a great script, but what lets it down is the fact it looks visually dated. I think the fact, considering it's meant to be Pluto, the skies are grey and it's not partic- doesn't look particularly warm, considering the number of suns they've got around the planet. And I think there's an awful lot of corridors, though. The lighting on them is just... 
it just feels quite visually repetitive and the colour scheme of it is quite it feels 70 sort of mustards and browns and just not particularly visually engaging and I think that's what puts me off it It's so dystopian we know it's filmed in factories and Bristol I think if I remember power stations and stuff Mm -hmm. it's a tricky thing when you're filming as well because mostly everything's in focus I would say so they're not putting the background out of focus. They don't have the time or the resources to do that. So everything, there's too much information there. I think that's part of the problem. They're limited with lighting and what they can do and, and budget. Let's face it, budget. But I mean, I was having an interesting conversation with a pal the other day. It's when you start a show or a film or whatever you want to do. And the script says, it's set here, there's this, 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 this. You've got to make that decision. Well, how am I going to represent this? And someone's probably looking at this going, we can't. You know, <laughs> we're just going to have to say this, 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 and this. But I think the, the good thing is that it can be carried by the story and the actors and the action that's going on because there's not really a dull moment. <laughs> it could so easily have dragged. Yeah. Henry uh, Wolfe is very good as the collector. Yes, yes. Very yeah. creepy, just that sinister nasal voice and those eyelashes, those eyebrows are just yes. very. Well, again, we're we're going back to hair. Everyone loves hair in, <laughs> in this in this in this season. But yeah, he's suitably creepy. But then you were just talking about you know, and previously in Fendel, at least this one had some humour in it. Very much so. It had some lighter moments. It's very watchable. I wouldn't say it's my first go-to episode to say, you know, mm-hmm. oh, I must watch. Again, um, the book expands on bits and pieces, and mm-hmm. when you watch it, you're kind of doing that. If you've, I suppose for me, I read so many of these things first before I see them. Maybe the other way around, it wouldn't have mattered so much, but it matters to me when it's not quite what I was expecting. But again, great job, a, a great cast. Lots of overacting, subtle acting, uh, comedic acting, yep. and um, Tom at some of his best. And of course, K9's first proper proper outing, where Absolutely. he sa- saves the day noisily, but saves the day. <laughs> and of course, for trivia fans, to the best of my knowledge, this is the only complete Dudley Simpson score that still exists in Mark Ayres' archive. Wow. Well, that's a bit sad. Is, but the tapes were never really kept so there's a bit of android invasion a bit of invasion of time and all of Sunmakers to the best of my knowledge is all that mm-hmm. exists in their original form so that's a sad thought because there's so many great scores but yeah oh well but hey talking of great things Stevie mm-hmm. why don't we hear now from Derek Handley who has created the picture gallery on this so he's brought together an awful lot of images and he's going to tell us all about them for not just this story, but across the season. Excellent. Yeah, I'm Derek Handley. Um, so uh, for the, the Blu-ray collection releases, um, I, I do all the photo galleries, compile those. And uh, and also um, for the some of the releases, I, I do reconstructions as well, telesnap reconstructions of the, the missing episodes. And you do them very well too, Obviously. I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously not for 15, No, not for 15. Thankfully, <laughs> everything is excellent and out there. So when did your interest in sort of, you know, photos and doctor images begin? 
Well, I guess I've always loved the, the photos, really. Um, when I was a young fan, I'm too young to remember any of the 60s stories. And just just that sort of fascination with all these things that, you know, had gone on before that I was unaware of. And uh, I was always trying to collect photos and um, do as much research into those stories as I could. Just because, you know, you read the target books and, and you want to see as much detail as you could. So I've always been you know, uh, trying to, to build up a collection and, and to see as many photos as I can. When I joined the DWAS, there were sort of photos offers on that you could buy, you know, little copies of um, BBC photos. And I built all of those. And then, you know, in the 80s, uh, there, there was often prints and things uh, on, on sale um, at conventions, things like that. And I, I bought loads of those. Uh, and it really just sort of stemmed from there, really. So, yeah, I've always had a passion for it. I, I think at one point I was buying sort of two copies of um, all the Doctor Who weeklies and Doctor Who monthlies and cutting one up with, with the pictures so I'd have a little photo album of, you know, from each story. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's always been a fascination for me. Yeah, I completely get that. I was uh, pretty much the same. I'd completely forgotten about Dwas selling those photos. Good gracious, I remember seeing them <laughs> CT all those years ago. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, yeah. So then I take it you were involved with the DVD collection with the photo galleries that appeared on there? Yeah, yeah. So um, when the, the, the DVD started, Rafe Montague, um, who was uh, a member of the, the, the restoration team, took it upon himself to, um, to, to start doing the photo galleries. And uh, he soon realised that there, there was a lot of stuff that, although he had access to the BBC archives, that there was a lot of photos that had gone missing over the years um, and certain stories that they were really short of. So he knew that I, I'd got a, a collection as well and, and knew other people um, that had. And so he sort of reached out to me sort of for, for help on some of those galleries where there was particularly few pictures. I think Carnival of Monsters, for instance, springs to mind where there was, I think he maybe only had sort of a dozen photos or something like that. Uh, and I was able to help him out with supplying some more for, for it. Uh, and so he then sort of contacted me quite regularly, sort of saying, you know, what have we got for this one? <laughs> and gradually I got more and more involved in the work to the point where I was, he would get, or we would get commissions for the um, the, the next coming lot of DVDs. Um, and, and we'd kind of take it in turns to, to do, you know, one gallery and then he'd do one. Um, over the years, I, I, I've sort of become, Rafe's kind of, ducked down out of it and I've taken over pretty much fully now so yeah it's sort of a gradual uh, gradual thing yeah I suppose Reef's got other things to keep him busy these days hasn't he as well he has yeah <laughs> yeah his lordship as he probably would hate to be yes. called to that <laughs> lovely I, I, I was down I was down at Beauty yesterday actually uh, and chatting to him and uh, they've now got um, uh, they've had Bessie there for a few years so they've now got the Hoomobile and they've mm -hmm. just got Sarah Jane's car from K9 and Company so uh, yeah it, that was really exciting to see that I didn't even know that still existed so neither did nice. I so I'd imagine then when the Blu-ray range began I say that slowly because it's very easy to trip over Blu-ray range but it's <laughs> a Blu-ray range but uh, I didn't woohoo um, that it was a case of okay here we go let's do these in the best possible presentation we possibly could yeah, I, I think initially that the plan was just to use the, the carryover DVD versions. You know, uh, it was sort of felt at the time that, okay, they, they were pretty good. We'll just use those and, and they'll just, you know, upscale them for the Blu-rays. But 
I sort of said to them, well, you know, a lot of the time now we've got better scans. But, you know, the, uh, some of those were done well over 20 years ago um, and the scanning technologies improved a lot. Um, uh, and we've got access to a, a wider range, a much wider range of photos now than we had then. You know, they're one of the things that can truly be HD. You know, uh, obviously most of the, the actual episodes are just upscaled from video so that they look great. But th these, you know, you've got a, an original 35 mil or a medium format slide or something. And, you know, they can be absolutely massive. And so you really can get good results from them. And it's certainly proved worth, I think, rescanning a lot of the stuff we had and recompiling these galleries. Having worked in newspapers and magazines for a number of years, I'm always curious to know what sort of DPI you're working at when you're scanning these. <laughs> so mostly that they've been scanned at 3,200 um, DPI. Uh, more recently, I'm doing them at 4,800. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> so, uh, 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 and we, we have scanned most things now that, that are in, in the BBC library. That's impressive. Wow. So let's have a chat about season 15 in particular and going through. So how did how well is it represented in the archives photographically? Those sort of mid Tom Baker years, unfortunately, they're not terribly well represented. Uh, and, and this season in particular, that some stories, there's very, very few pictures. Horror Fang Rock and Sunmakers in particular. Uh, I think for Sunmakers, that there was one black and white publicity shot that was selected. And there's an alternate frame on that negative but black and white wise that that's all that existed <laughs> so unfortunately there's a little bit more in the color but again not a lot the archives but when they took photos i mean that there were several different departments that were taking pictures so there was uh, the photographer signed by bbc to take the bbc publicity photos there were sometimes radio times photographers and quite often there would be someone from the design department sent along that would take pictures mostly of the sets which gave sort of continuity for when they had to maybe restage the set or just as reference for, for what was for how the sets were constructed and, and what they looked like and, and sometimes those were taken during rehearsals as well so you do get you do get actors on set in some of them sometimes not in the full costumes or makeup or, or whatever Sometimes they're almost indistinguishable from the, uh, for the publicity photos. So there's several different sources. Uh, and then, you know, certainly for some of the later stories, you, you do get fans and, and other people that were allowed in studio and, and sometimes took some photos there as well. But, you know, the, the majority of the ones that, that we, we have access to are, are the, sort of the BBC publicity design or, or Radio Times. For that season, there's almost nothing from Radio Times, though. Whether it wasn't taken or, or just not kept, we're not sure. Horror Fang Rock in particular, I think because that was done, filmed in Birmingham and not in London, I think that meant that there was a lot of the regular um, photographers weren't in that in that location, so just didn't get any pictures taken. There's certainly, um, there's no colour design shots. There's a handful of black and white prints that we've got access to. Uh, and relatively few colour and black and white publicity shots. Uh, no, nothing from Radio Times. So you know that that was one particularly we really did struggle with. That's amazing because uh, I know that you know the likes of the Daily Mirror. You know when they came to like the press conference for like launching K Nine with Tom and Louise, and there must be about seventy, eighty odd shots that were taken at the time. And is there, is there much in the way of that there for you guys? 
Yeah, so the photocalls, generally, there's a reasonable selection, you know, black and white and, and sometimes quite, quite a handful of colour as well. But uh, the story-specific stuff is more difficult um, because that was generally just the, you know, the, the BBC staff photographers that were had access to that. So yeah, there, there was um, obviously the, there was a, a rooftop photo call uh, on top of uh, I think it's a TV centre canteen or something like that uh, with, with Tom and Louise and they had K9 there. So the, there is quite a few press photos and there, there are BBC publicity photos from that. And then towards the end of the season, there was another photo call outside the American embassy with Tom and a, an array of different creatures, including the, the new Sontarans. And it, again, there, there are some, I think just black and white actually, but there, there are some shots from that that we've been able to use. On Invisible Enemy, introducing K9, that there was, uh, again, a fair bit of um, publicity for that, and including things like Blue Peter. Um, it, K9 was on Blue Peter and there was we've got a black and white film taken in the studio of K9 with John Noakes and uh, so we've used some of those and there's a few colour shots in there as well so hopefully they haven't been seen before Excellent, I do quite like seeing these unseen ones as I'm sure you do <laughs> Talking of unseen images of course Richard Bignall uncovered some slides so that must have been yeah. quite exciting for you to, to get these was, and then yeah. work on them I mean what sort of what sort of resolution can you get from a slide compared with a photographic print or a negative? Pretty good. I mean, the, the, the bonus of having the original slides or negatives that you can usually get a lot more detail out of them than you can a print. You know, if you've got a print, you're, you're limited to the contrast levels that that was printed at. Uh, and quite often that the dark areas are a bit crushed and the white areas are a bit bleached out. And, uh, you know, it looks okay, but but there's, there's no way that near the amount of detail that you can get on a good negative or, or an original slide scan. So we're lucky that so many of the originals do exist. But yeah, I think that at 64,000 or 6,400 DPI, you know, we do get pretty pretty good quality scans. So they're, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly weighing above what we need for, for Blu-ray. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're probably around about 6,000 pixels wide, something like that. So uh, wow. they, they do look stunning most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, can't wait to see these now. Really can't wait. But I suppose <laughs> that's the other thing is that you will get the odd surprise now and again when people turn up with their own private images that they took. I suppose you might find the odd cast member having taken something and, and the likes and then give you wee surprises here and there. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's lovely when, when we do find this sort of thing. Um, and Richard's very good at tracking down a lot of the, you know, the, the behind the scenes people that have worked on the show and, and did maybe have their, their own features. People like Sophie Aldred have been, been great when we did um, season 26. You know, she, she had quite a few films that she, she lent me the negatives and things like that. And, uh, you know, uh, and uh, other fans of certainly during the McCoy era, um, Richard himself uh, uh, taken photos in the studio uh, and they kindly lent me the negatives where they still can find them and uh, we were able to scan those. But uh, sadly, nothing quite that exciting for, for season 15. But one thing that we, one extra lot of pictures we did get though was from Matt Irvin, particularly for, for Invisible Enemy again. So he did all the, the model shots for that and he took quite a few 35 mil slides. So he, he lent me those, all the originals of those. He also had quite a few bits of the, the actual film trims, um, which he'd retained. So the, the, these were 
basically in a 35 mil side mount with two frames of the of the actual film they had degraded a little bit in terms of the colors that they'd gone terribly pink over the years most of those frames but you know in photoshop we were able to uh, pretty much correct the colors back to what they should be hopefully and uh, they, they we've used quite a few of those now on the gallery so you'll be able to see those I suppose that's the thing that it's the gift that never seems to stop giving just sort of finding all these gems and just thinking what is going to show up next because there always yeah. seems to be something being yeah. found I know that you know from personal experience stuff showing up in mirror pics when you know I thought everything had been extensively found in 2013 and tons of stuff shown up since then so it's always good to see yeah well well there, there was exciting stuff that, that that did turn up last year but unfortunately a lot of it were the seasons that we'd already released on on blu-ray which was quite frustrating but uh there, there is some stuff that will come into into use in some future ones as well so th this was a lot of stuff from the radio times photographer don smith sadly he passed away a couple of years ago uh, and i knew him fairly well i had often asked him have you got any negatives at home and he says oh if i'd kept everything you know i'd have a house full of stuff and it turned out he did have a house full of stuff it was absolutely packed with stuff that he never threw away <laughs> so fortunately we, we were able to to get in after he died and he had sort of left a he'd said to, to, to one of the guys that works at radio times that you know please go through the house and reclaim what you can i think there was about 40 boxes full of negatives films prints all sorts of things uh, that, that was retrieved from his house in the end only a fraction of Doctor Who, unfortunately, <laughs> but, uh, but there, were, there was there was literally tens of thousands of, of, of pictures and, and negatives that we've got now. I had eight boxes of those here that I was helping to sort through because many of them were just, there was one box that was literally just full of little bits of 35mm black and white negative, just cut up into two or three frames sometimes and just all mixed up in a big box. I'm still trying to work out what some of those are because uh, <laughs> nothing's labelled. There, there were sometimes a whole folder full of from a particular series that was labelled, but a, a lot of the stuff was just loose negatives or, or stuff in a folder or prints. And uh, there's a team have been spending the last year or so trying to identify and catalogue it all and uh, get it refiled back at Radio Times. But there's, yeah, there, there has been some some quite exciting Doctor Who stuff in there, so Brilliant. and some negatives that you know, from the 60s that we got prints of and we got contact sheets, but then the original negatives have gone missing. And now most of those have turned up, I'm glad to say. So That's fantastic yeah, news. I'd uh, assume then that, because I always wondered what the relationship was with the Radio Times, you know, given the, that it was no longer part of the BBC, having been sold off privately. Yeah, it, it's a complex one. So obviously when we started doing the, uh, the DVDs, uh, it, Radio Times was wholly owned by the BBC. And then I, I think it was around about 20, 2009, 2010 that they split off and are now owned by Immediate Media. So certainly anything past that point is is not a BBC copyright. Before that, it, it's, it, it's such a difficult area. All the staff at that point were BBC staff, although they were assigned to Radio Times. So we believe that, that it does come under... Uh, still BBC copyright, although those are mostly now back at the Radio Times offices. A lot of the Radio Times photos had been amalgamated into the BBC photo library. And over the last few years, that, that's gradually been 
sift through and most of the radio time stuff has now been separated out and sent back to radio times but quite often it's very difficult to tell what is what because you know they're not necessarily labeled as such and uh, it's just kind of trying to work out who took them when they were taken uh, and if we can sort of see if there's a something in radio times that matches up with that or not but it's it's a little bit of a tricky situation yeah i don't envy that one at all leave it to the lawyers <laughs> but uh, i i think that generally you know the radio times are, are quite happy for us to, to use these and you know that, that again they, they use a lot of bbc copyrights pictures as well so yeah everyone's a winner hopefully because <laughs> <laughs> this one you mentioned don smith's work because that would explain where quite a lot of these pictures that showed up on the Radio Times website last year had come from that exactly. we hadn't seen before. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Especially exciting that there was there was about two films from Mind of Evil, large medium format black and white necks, and probably the best pictures I've ever seen of Roger Delgado. Just absolutely stunning. And and Patrick Malkin has put a good selection of those up on the Radio Times website. If you haven't seen those then do check it out. Fantastic. Well that's been brilliant. Thank you, Derek. Really, really enjoyed that, getting a wee insight into how these things come together because there's a hell of a lot of work goes into them. So nice to let you know that they are appreciated. Thank you. But hopefully we'll speak again soon when there's some more images on the way <laughs> yes. to be seen and enjoyed. But no, thank you once again yeah. for your time, Derek. That's okay. Good to speak to you. Thanks. Big thanks to Derek joining us here on The Power of Three for the first time and, of course, to Richard, who is... An old seasoned pro at this game and uh, a friend of the podcast, as we like to say. I don't particularly like to say it because I hate it. It makes me sound like I'm on crap <laughs> local radio stuff. Hey, good friend of the show. But, oh, oh well, I'll go, I'll go with the flow. Others say it, so I might as well. So It's better than go. saying an enemy of the podcast. Oh, that's true. Well, do we have any enemies? I'm sure we do. We just can't mention them. No, let's not mention them because they're enemies of the podcast and that would be exactly. unfair. Exactly. But we've, we do have a lot of podcast pals <laughs> as well. So, yeah. Now, Stevie, talking of pals, why don't we hear from a couple of our pals to hear their thoughts on Image of the Fendal and the Sunmakers? First of all, we'll hear from Dr. John Bolin and then from the podcast's founding father, Tom Harris. Then we have Image of the Fendal. This for me is one of my favourite stories of all time. And I have a very complex relationship with this story because um, very inconsiderately my dad died between episodes two and three. That sounds terrible saying that aloud. I'll get a cough around the ear from my family if they listen to this. Uh, so the, the first two episodes of this, again, are very vivid for me. The last two, not so much. But uh, I remember watching the first couple of episodes, especially the first one, and being really creeped out by it because this was broadcast in November 1977. Uh, so it was cold and dark uh, and it seemed to fit very much with these kind of nighttime scenes, the, the threat of this creeping menace that you can't see at this point. I just thought, well, this was great, you know, and it really kind of seemed to tie in with what we kids were playing at outside. We used to always play Doctor Who and run about and do stuff like that. So, yeah, this was very much a kind of a, a, a chiming in with that. I just loved and was creeped out by the idea of not being able to move, not being able to get away. It's that classic 
night terror feeling, isn't it, when you're in this dream and you can't move? So I thought that was that was great. But I loved the rest of the story. I just thought it was good. I I, I believed the banter between the uh, the researchers, even though the the Fendaline themselves are a little bit ropey. I thought the full scale model worked really well. You know, as a kid, I was quite creeped out by that. But I just thought, yeah, a, a, bit, a bit like um, Horror of Fine Rock, a really good ensemble of a cast having fun with a with a creepy skull. Although a lot of it is kind of tongue-in-cheek, the, the end of it is quite dark as well. Um, when Style asks for the gun and, you know, the doctor gives it to him and then it becomes apparent that he means to use it on himself, you know, that takes us in a... Yeah, well, it takes us to... to a different kind of place. It's very much consistent, I suppose, with Chris Boucher's grittier style of writing. And um, so, yeah, again, f- for me, I would I would be giving Image of the Fendal ten out of ten. Just love it. Sunmakers. Well, uh, this is one that I remember very little of, really, uh, the first time around. I, I, I didn't really get into this story. I think the fact that it was very much about humour, it was very much a kind of a pastiche, very much a kind of a commentary on, well, I don't know if the urban myth is is true, it was Robert Holmes signing off about his relationship with Inland Revenue, uh, or HMRC or whoever, but there were no monsters in it, you know, the monster was the system, the monster was the, well, the fiscal monster, Uh, so... That for me as a kid just meant this kind of went, you know, over my head. Uh, and I've only really come to appreciate it as, as an adult who, you know, would heartily sympathise with Robert Holmes in his uh, fight against the man, uh, against the corporation. Yeah, but a witty, a witty classic, shall we say? So I would give it, um, yeah, give it a, a, a six out of ten. For me, and then image of the fin down. Yeah, well, I said that, I said that it stopped scaring me, but I remember watching image of the fin down and thinking this is proper scary stuff. Yeah, very hard horror. Really pleased with it. I, I thought that was, it's probably my favourite from that season because I just thought you know there's some great imagery in this. There was some, some really genuine scares. Yeah, slightly ropey special effects and model work, but it was actually quite impressive at the same time. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, and Wand of Anthem just looks glorious as well, so... Yeah, yeah. The Sunmakers, it looks a bit yeah. cheap. It, it does, you know. It, but it's a great script. It's a brilliant script, and it, you know, <laughs> I, I guess the producers must have thought... I mean, of course, it's set in Pluto. So, of course, it's not going to be sunny. <laughs> but, I mean, they weren't really going for realism because, you know, if it was set in Pluto, it would be complete blackness. Um, and I just thought, I bet they wished for sunny weather when they when they, when they uh, filmed this. And it is so dull and overcast and miserable looking. Um, but it's great. And especially at the end when the guy gets chucked off the roof of the, the building. That's really... Really pretty grim, quite violent actually, but funny as well. Very black humour. I, I, I thought it was a great show. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. 
on Image of the Fendal and the Sunmakers. But Stevie, would you like to come back next week and uh, discuss the final two stories of the season? I would love to come back next week and discuss the final two. It's hard to believe that we are discussing the final two. I know. It's isn't, it, isn't it funny though? Well, not funny. I mean, for 25 minutes and four each and blah, blah, blah. But these seasons seem to go on forever. They do. And, but in a good way. I, I don't mean in a bad way. But over the years, it's just decreased and decreased and decreased. And okay, I think it's better to have 50 minute, 55 minute episodes per story instead of 25. Because there's an awful lot of repeating in a 25. That's the other thing I would say about this. There's an awful lot of repeating. Yeah. But would you say there's an awful lot of repeating? I would say there's an awful lot of repeating, 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 repeating. <laughs> the thing about Doctor Who at that point is that you started watching and it seemed to, whenever it was on, it seemed to go on forever in a good way. And now, whether it's because we're older or the format, you're watching it and before you know it, you're at the end. And that has an effect on how you think about it and how you look at it and how kids look at it, especially on demand. If they don't get it while it's live and then they catch up with it one Saturday, all eight episodes, it's not the same. Yeah, binging it, box setting it, to use that term. But no time to digest. Yeah. And that's the thing about all these episodes. On a good cliffhanger, say Fang Rock, you had an entire week to worry and discuss with your pals of what's going to happen, this, that, and the other. And that's a change in broadcast. But it has an effect on Doctor Who. It has an effect on how we look at things like this now, because I watched these episodes one after another. Interesting. Is definitely a... I think that's a discussion for another day, but to sort of, you know, our consumption of, of the show and how it's changed over the years and how we look at it. So yeah, I think yeah, we'll definitely have to revisit that in the very near future. But Stevie? Kenny, I was thinking as I do, striving along and I was thinking, oh, I'm doing a podcast with Kenny. And I was thinking of all the questions that I could possibly ask you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going to say what Pantone is the TARDIS? No, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you had to say, I don't know, record a podcast more or less every week and you were at episode 200 and whatever and you were at episode 200 and whatever what, what song do you think you might possibly play out with? Well, I would consider what had been discussed, for example if there was a story that was perhaps related to an image, you know, it could have been like Picture of You from Boyzone but I hate them, so there's no chance that's getting played. And uh, then thought something's related to like the Sunmakers, and you think um, when they were doing the Sunmakers, obviously they were under quite a lot of pressure as the budget is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, and they'd be feeling the pressure. And um, would they be under pressure, Kenny? They would be under pressure, but you'd almost you know, think you know, like they'd be screaming. So I'm reminded of a 1995 hit that I absolutely loved because I used to listen to this on repeat in the jukebox in the banks of Uri Pub in Inverurie. We are going with sunscreen and pressure us. Let's get some dance music on. Hit it, guys. We'll see you next week. I'm going to do my taxes. Goodbye. Goodbye.